Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. Happy New Year to everyone. This is the first installment of the January 2019 issue. Two topics for the introduction. You probably noticed we have a new journal section called Images in Radiology. These are state-of-the-art imaging examples. This section of the journal has been extremely popular since we started it less than one year ago. This month, our case is an example of acute flaccid myelitis in a 10-year-old girl. According to the United States Center for Disease Control, or CDC, there have been 165 confirmed cases of acute flaccid myelitis in 2018 in the United States. What is acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM? AFM is a rare condition that primarily affects the gray matter of the spinal cord, but can also affect the brain in 10 to 30% of cases. The clinical presentation is rapid onset of flaccid weakness in the limbs. MRI is critical to diagnosis. The spinal cord lesions mainly affect the gray matter. 90% of cases span three or more spinal segments. 90% of cases are also in children. The symptoms are similar to that of polio, but polio has been eliminated in the United States. None of the confirmed cases has demonstrated positive for polio virus. The exact cause of AFM is not known. However, there is an association with enterovirus infection. Viral infection in the spinal fluid was so far detected in only four of 491 confirmed cases since 2014. Oddly, there is a spike of AFM every two years since 2014. The spike this past year in 2018 was the largest, 165 cases this year, but only 35 cases in 2017. In 2016, there were 149 cases. According to the CDC, most cases occur between August until November. Nearly every state in the U.S. has had cases, but there are exceptions. California is the largest state, but only five cases. Northern states have had more cases than expected based on population. I live in Wisconsin, where there are nine reported cases. According to historical standards, the number of cases should now decrease over time in the spring. We hope so. Our review article this month is about imaging of cancer immunotherapy. The first author is Dr. Mizuki Nishino from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. This is a terrific review article that can bring you up to date in a hurry. I will summarize just a few points here. Dr. James Allison is acknowledged with the development of cancer immune therapy while at UC Berkeley. A company called Metarex was started to test his new therapy. Metarex and Merck eventually performed the main clinical trials on the first drug called ipilimumab. The trade name is Yervoy. Yervoy was approved for treatment of unresectable or metastatic melanoma in 2011. Dr. Allison won the Lasker Award in 2015. The Lasker Award is the highest prize in medicine in the United States. But for good measure, Dr. Allison also won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine just this past year in 2018. Cancer immunotherapy does not kill cancer cells. Instead, the concept is to block the defense mechanism of the cancer cells. Those tumor cells secrete factors that block our defenses to prevent our own T cells from killing the tumor. The PD-1 and other immune checkpoint inhibitor drugs are antibodies that prevent tumors from secreting factors that otherwise block our own immune system. The early trials of Yervoy, the first immune agent, showed an odd pattern. 
Despite apparent progression of disease, longer-term follow-up showed that patients eventually had a positive response to therapy. Unlike conventional drugs, the initial change in tumor size may not be the best measure to define response to therapy. Eventually, the clinical trials changed their outcome to overall survival, not change in tumor size. How good are the new drugs? Very roughly speaking, almost twice as effective as prior therapies. More importantly, these results seem to be quite durable. With advanced melanoma, the survival rate is still less than 30%, but for those patients with successful therapy at two years, the majority are still alive after five years. So what do radiologists need to know about immune therapy? Several key points. Number one, sometimes tumors get larger after therapy called pseudoprogression, or they may have new lesions appear, but months later, the tumors will regress. Less than 10% of patients have pseudoprogression. The mechanism is thought to be due to infiltration of the tumor by T-cells. Two, because of pseudoprogression, the normal resist criteria are modified. There are two response criteria for tumor response with a similar name. One is I-resist. The major new category of response in I-resist is unconfirmed progression of disease. Another CT scan must be done after four to eight weeks. If the tumor continues to progress, the disease progression is confirmed. Number three, there are multiple adverse events with these drugs to be aware of. The first is hypophysitis. The pituitary gland is enlarged on MRI. Pituitary function is suppressed. This affects about 10% of patients treated with Yervoy, typically about two months after starting therapy. The treatment is corticosteroids and hormone replacement therapy. The next complication is pneumonitis. The incidence is about 3% of patients. If it develops, pneumonitis is most common about three months after starting therapy. There are a wide variety of patterns in the lung, including the appearance of an organizing pneumonia. Treatment is corticosteroids and stopping immune therapy. Number five, the next complication is sarcoid-like lymphadenopathy. Enlarged lymph nodes may not be able to be distinguished from advanced metastatic disease. The lymph nodes may be positive at PET. The incidence of this complication is about 5% of patients. Number six, Finally, colitis occurs in about 10% of patients. It starts after six to seven weeks after the start of therapy and resolves a few weeks later. The majority of patients have a diffuse colitis. About 25% have segmental colitis, similar to that of a diverticulitis. So that's a brief summary of this excellent review article by Nishino and colleagues at Dana-Farber. Next step, on to our new research articles. The short title of our first article is Mammographic Breast Density Assessment Using Deep Learning. The first author is Dr. Connie Lehman, an established and well-known researcher in the breast imaging community. She and her colleagues are at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I chose this article for a reason. Many of us just returned from the RSNA. The number one issue at the meeting was artificial intelligence, or AI. Besides AI advertising from nearly every vendor, Almost every other lecture had to mention AI. It was nonstop AI. Then we all returned back to our radiology practices, and we do the same old thing. In my cardiac section, we do not have any AI tools. I'm pretty sure there is no AI at all in any clinical section in our department. But my goodness, do we ever need it. 
There are simply too many mundane things that very highly skilled radiologists need to do that take too much time relative to their value. Think of measuring tumor size. Has it increased or decreased? Do I have the exact same slice thickness on the current scan compared to the last one? Am I drawing the long axis of the tumor exactly the same way as before? It's only been two months since the last CT, but I have no understanding of the growth curve over two years. This is disappointing. I am back from the most sophisticated, advanced medical conference in the world, but it feels like I have not advanced much since I used a red wax marker and a piece of paper to measure tumor sizes on actual pieces of CT film. I used to spend a lot of time interpreting breast MRI. For MRI, and of course mammograms, it is necessary to report breast density. Breast density is required to be reported by the law in 30 states in the United States. But are we any good at it? The answer, probably not. In one study of 34 radiologists, the inter-radiologist agreement was only 60 to 80%. In another study, there was an extreme variation. Using BIRADS, anywhere from 6% to 85% of radiologists called the mammogram dense or extremely dense. In other words, even though you may be an expert in mammography, it's not likely you are an expert in grading breast density. Already, there are alternatives. One is a computer system called Volpera. The other one is called Quantra. These software programs certainly measure something about breast density, but it seems to be different than human readers can see. Perfect agreement is measured by a statistic called the kappa value. It goes from 0 to 1.0. Kappa is a sophisticated way of stating the agreement between readers. But kappa is fancier than percentage agreement. Kappa takes into account that sometimes readers agree simply by chance. Unfortunately, kappa, like many complex statistical measures, is a little awkward to understand. But you still need to know about it. When there is perfect agreement between readers, kappa has a value of 1. When there is no agreement other than expected by chance, the value of kappa is 0. So kappa goes from 0 to 1. Usually we say if kappa is more than about 0.8, the agreement between readers is very good to excellent. Back to software by Volpera and Quantra. The kappa values are only about 0.3 to 0.6 in agreement with radiologists. So those commercial software packages do measure breast density, but they seem to measure breast density differently than humans. Maybe an AI system could do better. Purpose. To use deep learning to evaluate breast density on a mammogram. The concept is excellent. It is something we need, and we want to see if an AI can learn to grade breast density the same way as a human does. In this study, not only did the authors develop AI for breast density, they also did a bit of a psychological test. They looked to see if the AI results were accepted in clinical practice. Methods. The authors trained the AI on nearly 40,000 mammograms. To train an AI, you need a standard of reference. The mammogram density had been previously assigned by 12 different mammographers. After training and validation, there were two ways to test the AI. The traditional way, a fresh set of almost 9,000 mammograms. The second way, put the AI in the clinic. It took five seconds in total. The mammogram was automatically sent to the AI, it was interpreted, and the results were presented back to the radiologist mammographer. So what happened? Results. The traditional testing, agreement with a prior set of 9,000 mammography reports. The AI had an 87% match on breast density with those reports to indicate if the breast was either dense or non-dense.
Second, the prospective test put the AI in the clinic. Here, on almost 11,000 mammograms, the agreement was even higher, 94% match with the mammographers for dense versus non-dense. For the four BIRADS categories, the agreement was 90%. Conclusion. So we have a problem here. Let's review the steps for AI evaluation. First, the model is trained, in this case about 40,000 mammograms. Second step is validation, about 9,000 cases. The validation step allows the research team to tune up the AI and make corrections. Third step, test the AI on independent test sets, a fresh set of cases. A criticism of the current study is the test cases were not really independent. While no study is perfect, test cases were from the same institution, the same mammography units. However, they were a fresh batch of cases never before seen by the AI. The AI had an 87% match in the final test. Then the additional step in this study, put the AI in the clinic. But now the match is even higher, at 94% on about 10,000 prospectively evaluated cases. That is not supposed to happen. How did the AI seem to get even better in the clinic? This had to do with the study design. Imagine measuring lung nodules. You really do not like to measure lung nodules manually. The electronic calipers is clumsy, your wrist is tired, it requires five or six clicks for each nodule. It slows you down, you make typographical errors, and it's basically unsatisfactory. Instead of this, tomorrow I give you an almost magical software tool where you do nothing except check the AI measurements. You glance at the numbers, see if they're reasonable. You do the first 30 cases or so, and the tool is remarkably good. Only once or twice do you make an adjustment. You quickly learn the tool is just as good as you, except in a few certain situations that you now begin to recognize. The magic AI tool does some of the work, so now you can concentrate on something else. In this study, the mammographers in the clinic quickly realized they could avoid straining their own brains. What about those in-between cases? Is it dense or non-dense? The AI became the tiebreaker. Why not agree with it? After all, it has seen more cases than you have in the last five years. It's simply easier to agree with the AI than to dispute the AI result. The agreement between mammographer and AI becomes almost perfect. Recently, I heard a talk about AI by an esteemed PhD researcher. This very prominent individual stated that radiologists are unlikely to accept AI in their practices, that radiologists will be the single biggest barrier to AI implementation. Really, I was sort of shocked to hear this. My thought, for mundane tasks that are repetitive, we are already too late with AI. We read 30% more cases and have 30% less time. This paper by Dr. Lehman shows adoption of AI can be almost immediate. Not surprising to me. Radiologists are early technology adopters. The latest iPhone X, the latest Tesla car model, the latest software tool. Or is the PhD researcher right? Will we refuse to let AI in the reading room? I don't think so, but time will tell. The title of the next article is Quantitative Assessment of Liver Function by Using Gatoacetic Acid Enhanced MRI, Hepatocyte Uptake Ratio. Many of our cutting-edge research articles in GI are from leading research groups in Seoul, Korea, and this paper is a nice example. In addition, we have an editorial on the topic by a leading GI researcher in the U.S., Dr. Scott Reeder at the University of Wisconsin. Background. How do we measure liver function? We think of liver enzymes or albumin levels. Liver enzymes reflect liver damage from viral infection or necrosis. Another way is to inject green dye into the blood. 
indocyanine green, or ICG, is a fluorescent dye. It was first tested for medical purposes at the Mayo Clinic in 1957 and approved for medical use in 1959. 70% of the dye is extracted by the liver after a first pass. After ICG injection, the amount left in the blood is measured after 15 minutes. The dye is fluorescent, so a probe can be placed on the skin surface to measure the dye content. The ICG retention ratio compares the blood concentration of the dye at 15 minutes to that immediately after injection. Less than 10% should be left in the blood at 15 minutes. If there is more than 20% left in the bloodstream, then liver function is severely depressed. A ratio of more than 20% on the ICG test is a contraindication to major liver resection. There will not be enough liver left over to provide adequate function. Purpose. The purpose of the study was to compare ICG testing with gadolinium MRI using gadoacetic acid. Gadoacetic acid is known as Eovist in the United States or Primovist in Europe. This is also abbreviated as gadolinium EOB. Eovist is the only surviving MRI contrast agent left over from the efforts in the 1990s by pharma to develop targeted MRI contrast agents. I spent 10 years or more testing these new drugs to target lymph nodes, blood clots, and the vascular system. One by one, all were discontinued, most because they were not economically viable, except Eovist. Eovist is used extensively in Asia because of the high degree of liver disease. Perhaps that alone should get our attention in the U.S., where liver disease is increasing, but Eovist is still used in a variable fashion. Quick review of this contrast agent. Eovist can be injected as a bolus for liver imaging. We have standard arterial and portal phase images. You get a bonus phase, however. About 50% of Eovist is excreted by the liver. Eovist is taken up by a transporter membrane protein on the surface of the hepatocytes. The contrast agent is then excreted into the biliary system. In a delayed phase, about 10 to 20 minutes after injection, the contrast agent is inside normal hepatocytes and is being gradually excreted. The main use is for detecting hepatocellular carcinoma. These tumors do not take up the contrast agent and are dark on T1 images. Metastases are also dark and adenomas are dark on delayed phase, but focal nodular hyperplasia has functioning hepatocytes FNH enhances like normal liver on an EOVIST MRI study. The use of EOVIST is emphasized in most recent research regarding LIRADS. This is because extra information is gained in that delayed imaging phase. Methods. In this paper, the authors compared ICG for liver function to liver function determined by EOVIST MRI. The amount of EOVIST in the liver is related to the ratio of T1 time of the liver before and after injection. But not all Eovist is inside the liver cells at 10 minutes. There is some in the blood vessels, and some Eovist is extravascular, between cells. How to correct for this? One approach is to look at spleen enhancement. The spleen enhances with Eovist, but none of it is inside the splenic cell. Any enhancement in the spleen is due to capillary as well as extracellular Eovist. The authors multiplied the liver Eovist T1 times by a correction factor based on the ratio of water in the spleen to water in the liver. Results. There were 50 patients in this prospective study. The correlation coefficient between EOVIST MRI and the ICG test was quite high, about 0.8. This was better than expected. 
all patients who would be prevented from surgery with the ICG test would also have been prevented using the EOVIST MRI. But why bother to do the MRI when the ICG test is also available? The main point, MRI can show function in each region of the liver. For patients who have major resections, the surgeon can visualize which parts of the liver are working and which are not. The maps of liver function on MRI are sophisticated, yet easy to understand. Conclusion. More liver MRI is being done with EOVIST. Besides detecting tumors, the same test can tell us which portions of the liver are working, which are damaged. Dr. Scott Reeder from the University of Wisconsin comments on this study. The authors used T1 mapping to measure the liver T1 time. T1 mapping was mostly adapted from studies of the heart. Dr. Reeder comments that T1 times show variation between MRI manufacturers. Different pulse sequences are used, perhaps. However, the authors used the ratio of T1 times before and 10 minutes after EOVIST injection. In the heart, the ratio of T1 times tends to balance out differences between manufacturers. The second potential problem is fatty liver or iron deposition in the liver. Fat and iron both lower the T1 time of the liver. Perhaps greater fat or iron in the liver may also balance out by the use of the ratio of the T1 times. Again, we do not know. Of course, Dr. Reeder himself is rather famous for inventing new methods to accurately measure liver fat and iron using MRI. We could use those factors to apply correction factors to the liver function map. Dr. Reeder notes that viral hepatitis is a worldwide health problem. More than 1 billion people have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Hepatocellular carcinoma has tripled in incidence since 1980. It is the most rapidly growing form of cancer worldwide. It seems reasonable that MRI technology may be leveraged beyond simply detecting tumors. Liver fibrosis, fat, iron, and malfunction can be assayed in a single comprehensive MRI examination. The short title of our next article is Does Non-Contrast CT Quantification of Abdominal Aortic Calcification Outperform Framingham Risk Factors for Predicting Cardiovascular Events? The first author is Stacy O'Connor. The senior author is Dr. Perry Pickert from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Background. Yes, I mentioned Dr. Perry Pickard as a senior author. You probably know his name. Dr. Pickard is a leading radiology researcher in the United States who developed, tested, and validated virtual colonoscopy. If you need a virtual colon performed, he would be the one you would like to perform and interpret the test. In 2014, Dr. Pickard gave one of the best and most widely attended radiology conferences at the NIH, the John Dotman Lecture. You can view his lecture online on the NIH website. Before coming to Madison, Dr. Pickard was at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda. His expertise in virtual colonoscopy was widely recognized. President Obama later had a virtual CT colonoscopy performed there. The CT test avoided general anesthesia for the president that would otherwise be needed for traditional colonoscopy. So why did Dr. Pickard switch to studying cardiovascular disease? Two reasons. First, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death and disability worldwide. Second, he had the data a large database of patients who had a CT virtual colonoscopy study. Those patients have been followed for years, so health outcomes were available. Purpose. To compare CT-based calcium score of the aorta to the Framingham risk score for prediction of cardiovascular events. 
methods. The Framingham Risk Score is very useful. The score includes powerful predictors of cardiac disease, age and gender. Beyond that, the score includes smoking, diabetes, blood pressure, and cholesterol score. What about CT? The investigators adapted standard software for calcium scoring of the heart. This software was based on developments of Dr. Arthur Agatston and his colleagues around 1990. Calcium was defined if the aortic density was 130 Hounsfield units or greater. The aorta was analyzed for calcium from the diaphragm to the aortic bifurcation. Results. The authors had complete information for 829 patients. About half were men and half women. The average age was 58 years. Over the next 11 years, about 20%, or 1 in 5, had a cardiovascular event. A measure of diagnostic performance is the AUC value. The AUC of the CT abdominal calcium score was markedly better than that of the Framingham risk score. At 10 years, the CT score had an AUC of 0.76. The Framingham AUC was 0.67. The statistical models were tested. If only the CT abdominal score was used, there was no additional value in doing the Framingham risk score. Conclusion Abdominal aortic calcium score seems better than Framingham risk score for prediction of cardiovascular risk. This makes sense. The calcium score is the actual phenotype we're looking for. The Framingham score only tries to predict that calcified phenotype. Similar results have shown that the coronary artery calcium score is also better than the Framingham risk score. So which is better, coronary calcium or abdominal calcium score? We do not know right now. My suspicion is that the results will be similar. Probably, the coronary calcium score would be better at predicting myocardial infarction, but cardiovascular disease also includes other events, such as stroke and heart failure. Dr. Pickhart makes the point that an abdominal calcium score of 200 was a useful cutoff, and many patients are now obtaining virtual colonoscopy. Besides calcium score, the same CT can also provide bone density evaluation, also strongly related to health outcome, and of course, the CT may also detect other malignancies in the abdomen. In conclusion, the potential value of virtual colonoscopy with CT continues to grow. These are interesting results. The abdominal calcium score could be easily integrated into a 5- or 10-year health checkup. It requires about one minute of additional time to calculate. Our health systems are now responsible for improving our overall health. Since cardiovascular disease is so common, this abdominal calcium score may help towards that goal. Our last article for today, optimizing electronic release of imaging results through an online patient portal. The researchers are from the University of Michigan and also the University of Indiana. The lead author is Dr. Matthew Davenport at Michigan. Background. This is an article about you as a physician and you as a patient. It is a study about choice. Probably most of us have been involved in a discussion about when radiology reports should be released directly to the patient. Should we release the result immediately? Should we give the referring physician a few days to catch up with office work? Personal contact by the referring physician might be more important for a critical diagnosis such as cancer. Further background, the United States government has provided financial incentives to medical centers for patients to have online access to their own health information. The theory, we should take more responsibility for our own health. A common online system used for medical records is called MyChart. 
Although physicians make decisions about when to release the information, we usually do so without any information about patient preference. The radiology report can be complex. The benign diagnosis of hemangioma in the liver could easily become a concern to a patient. But if we diagnose glioblastoma multiforme, does the patient immediately understand they have a deadly malignancy? Purpose. The purpose was to determine patient preferences for release of radiology reports. Patients were asked about a diagnosis that matters, a report about cancer on an imaging test. Methods. This was a survey of four medical institutions in the United States. Patients received a survey of 12 questions. They took the survey immediately after having an imaging test, such as a CT or MRI. The survey had three parts. Part one, the time. Do you want to receive your test result at one day, three days, or 14 days later? That seems simple, but the answer might depend on how the cancer result is received. So part two, the method. Do you want your result using an online patient portal, by a phone call, or in your physician's office? Part three, the conditions. Do you want your result before your referring physician gets the result at the same time, or only after your referring physician has a result in hand? Note these are not mutually exclusive combinations. Statistical survey methods are used to sort out the combination of preferences. Results. 464 patients were contacted. 90% of patients returned the survey, a very high response rate. A typical survey has a response rate of 10 or 20%. So this indicates the patients were very invested. There were 418 responses. Two-thirds of the patients were over age 50. Let's look at each survey part separately. The timing. Patient preference was to get their result immediately. Method. Over the phone. Condition from the physician. Results can become more complex if the radiology report is held up in the online portal or if there is a delay in their own physician getting the report. If a follow-up office appointment to get the results cannot be made within six days or if there was no physician phone call within 11 days, then the results were best released immediately online. On the other hand, if your physician is able to contact you within three days with the cancer diagnosis, that was preferred to having the results immediately available on the online portal. A short embargo period was fine for the patient. Conclusion. I suspect everyone has an opinion about when they want their test result. Do you think patients know that their results are available from radiology often within an hour, but they are willing to wait for up to three days to get a serious diagnosis of cancer from their referring physician? In this survey, two-thirds of patients were older than age 50. It might be that younger patients have different preferences. Also, these results apply to the United States. It would be interesting to see how our results compare to a patient preference in other parts of the world. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a very good rest of your week.